Thank you, John. You can imagine where BJ and Lewis and I were this past week at the uh, Together for the Gospel conference, the T4G conference in Louisville, Kentucky. You can imagine singing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. With 12,000 of your closest friends. If you can imagine the magnificence of that. And imagine what Joe is experiencing right now. You know, there's someone missing from those chairs in the back. And uh, uh, Joe um, caught me a little bit by surprise there. Uh, Joe, Joe is someone, for some reason, that we all love to love. And he loved us back. And I want to say something very, very important about Joe Gallus. And I want you to listen. I am convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dr. George Matheson was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1842. He was brilliant. He graduated uh, from the University of Glasgow, then achieved uh, further degrees, advanced degrees, his doctoral uh, degrees. He pastored several churches throughout Scotland and, uh, and, and ended up in a very large church in Edinburgh. He was a well-known scholar, became a professor at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, but one thing was unique about George Matheson, uh, and that is that he had partial vision as a child and it grew progressively worse so that by the time he was 18 years old, he was totally blind. The young woman that he loved told him that she couldn't go through life with a blind man, and she broke their engagement. So he pastored, and he taught, and he studied, and he wrote with the help of his sister. When he was around 30 or so, and she got married, uh, and he was delighted for her. But the pain of being alone because of his blindness was discouraging, and he poured out his pain by writing the hymn, O oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. When all else about you crumbles, when people disappoint you, when people leave you, nothing can separate you from the love that will not let you go. We all long for security and for an unconditional love, I think, that will not let us go. And that's what Romans 8, 31 to 39, those verses are all about. And today we conclude this amazing section in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8. And I'm going to begin with a review. I know that that's a surprise to you, isn't it? We never review here, do we? Okay, so... Let's review. The central theme of the book of Romans is found in chapter 1, verse 16, and this will take us on up to where we find ourselves in chapter 8. Chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then from that point on, he describes what sin is. And in verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. No one is without excuse. No one has an excuse before God. To say, well, you know, I didn't know. Well, God says, yes, you did. You live in the created world that reflects your creator. But there are those who would look down upon those, upon others, those who are very religious. And Paul addresses them in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. So, if you're rebellious against God, you're without excuse. Okay. If you're religious and trying to earn your way into heaven, you too are without excuse because you are not entering into a relationship with God on the proper foundation, which is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, that too is sin. So, Okay, what if you're the most religious of all? What if you are a Jew who has a relationship with God? Well, chapter 3 asks the question, what advantage has the Jew? Verse 1. And then verse 9 concludes, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he concludes in verse 23 of chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then everything turns on a dime. Everything changes. Verse 24, being justified or declared righteous as a gift freely. There's nothing in us that brought that about. This is God's action. Being declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 1, tells us the result, one of the results of that. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which takes us up to chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's through faith in Christ Jesus. And so many of these chapters end with the idea of Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the one who paid it all. He is the one who died in our place. And that these verses, verses 31 to 39 of chapter 8, conclude this section and answer the question. Now, don't get me wrong here. It's not the question, how important is it to you, but rather, how important is it to God? How important is it to God that you know you are secure as his son or daughter? How important is it to God that you know this? So let's recap. Before we just had a review, this is a recap. It's a different thing altogether. 
Let's recap, starting with verse, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If, or as we said last week, since God is for us, who is against us? The subject of the questions in verses 20, 32 and 33 is God the Father. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, we do face serious trials and challenges in, a lot in our lives, things that are against us. But can those hardships do anything to change your status, to make you less loved, to make you less secure, to make you less saved? No. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Do you see his point? The idea that the Father would turn against us is just not possible. The Father has already declared us righteous. It's the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So the argument continues in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So Jesus is now our lead defense counsel. He died for us. Can't do anything more than that. He is now interceding for us as our advocate with the Father, and he's preparing a place for us. John 14, 1 to 6. It's Jesus who declared on the cross in our behalf, it is finished. And at this point, Paul asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he puts forth a list of all possible candidates just to make sure that, I don't want to make sure that you understand the structure of this. Verses 35 to 37 focus on earthly or natural trials for the most part. Now, they can never separate us from the love of Christ. And then verses 38 and 39 focus mostly on supernatural, cosmic forces and how they can never separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then he lists seven items. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Each one of these trials, if you were going through them, might make you wonder if God really loves you, because if he did, why would you be suffering this? And I said last week that this list is very real for the Apostle Paul. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. After Romans, you have 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. And chapter 11 is right after chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to jump in into the middle of a context in the middle of an argument, and you'll understand that, but there are certain things for us to understand in the Apostle Paul's autobiography. Verse 23 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. You know, that would be a good sermon title, wouldn't it? I speak as if insane. Don't get any ideas. This is what he says. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Now, make sure you get that. He was flogged, not once, with 39 lashes, five times. Five times. And that's up to 2 Corinthians. There's more to come in his life. There's more suffering that you, uh, after 2 Corinthians written around Acts 21 or so. Okay? So everything that happened after that is a part of 
other things that he continued to suffer. So five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. And he's got more of that to come too. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says something that's just stunning. Look at verse 28. Apart from such external things. <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah, those are all external things. It's just, you know, external things. You know, for me, those would be very internal. I'd be struggling deeply with them. But no, they just, he just puts them in the category and dismisses them. Apart from that, such external things. And here's what really gets to the internal part. There's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Now, look over in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse uh, 10. Therefore, listen to what he says. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, I am emptied of myself. And then I am strong. Why? Because it's not me in me, it's Christ in me who is shown forth. So, back to Romans chapter 8. When Paul gives this list of things, when he talks about um, all of the things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, he has lived that list and he will die by that list so those are things instead of having those turn him away from Jesus he wrote to the Colossians I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake now that is a transformed mind my friends a renewed mind looking at the circumstances of his life through the lens of the sovereign God who is bringing about his glory, which includes our best eternal good. So that is the God who loves you. That is the God who died for you. And, and taking this one step further, no circumstance is powerful enough to cause Christ to turn against us. As I mentioned last week, the point is not your love for Christ or its quantity, or its quality, or the consistency of your feelings. It's all about him and his love for you. My salvation does not depend on the fervency of my love for Jesus. Thankfully, it's anchored in his love for me. Verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And we examined this quotation from Psalm 44 last week, a part of a lament where by those who are trying to follow the Lord faithfully, but who are suffering from things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. And, and, and basically in Psalm 44, the psalmist accuses God of taking a nap while we're suffering down here. 
Over 1,800 years ago, 1,800 years ago, the Christian theologian Tertullian said, we Christians multiply by being mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. 1,600 years ago, 200 years after Tertullian, one of the church fathers named Jerome, he was a, the first Bible translator, translated the Vulgate, the Bible, into Latin. Jerome said, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. And today, over the world, the price of being a Christian is rising. Many are experiencing tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Psalm 44 concludes with this plea. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And what Paul is saying is, no matter how you may feel, God did rise up. God did help. He is our help. He did redeem. He became our redeemer. And therefore, verse 37 says, but in, not apart from all these devastating things, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And last week, we examined this unusual Greek verb, we overwhelmingly conquer. But I want you to think about this. Today, I want to put together three different things. First of all, Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd, right? The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Does Jesus as the good shepherd remind you of the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. Yes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. And so on. And in the lament of Psalm 44, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. One very thoughtful student of scripture wrote this. Those who follow their Messiah into the valley of the shadow of death will find they need fear no evil. Though they are sometimes seem like sheep for the slaughter, yet they may trust the shepherd whose love will follow them all the days of their life. Now, verses 35 through 37 focused on natural earthly trials and how they can never separate us from the love of Christ. Now we move into the new stuff. Verses 38 and 39 focus on supernatural cosmic forces and how they can never separate us from the love of Christ. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Ten items he's listed. Ten items. Uh, several listed in pairs. Will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He begins by saying, I am convinced. That's the, the way that the NIV renders it, the NASB renders it. That way, the ESV says, I am sure, which is not strong enough, I think. I, think. I am convinced. Many, many people throughout history have been convinced of things that are not true. Paul is saying the reason he's convinced is because this is bedrock reality. When I was a teenager, I used to take dates to, well, dating was different then, but uh, different friends to uh, movies. And uh, 
one of the movies that was playing for uh, about a year and a half in one theater in Brainerd was The Sound of Music with Julie Andrews and Panavision or something like that. It was, a, it was like the picture started there at that, at that brace and went all the way around to that one. It was just cinema school. I don't know. It had, had a name for it. And you were just right there in it. And uh, so I, I saw that a number of times with uh, different friends, uh, Betsy being one of them. And uh, she sang about having confidence in all sorts of things. What were some of the things that she had confidence in? I have confidence in sunshine, rain. You can go outside and feel some confidence if you want to. The spring will come again. And besides all you see, I have confidence in me. Yeah, I have confidence in me. No. Paul said, it's, it's not I am convinced, not because of me, but because of him who died for me, who now intercedes for me, who keeps me saved. My confidence is not in me and my ability to hang on. This confidence does not reside within yourself. It is anchored in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And later on, Paul will say this in the very Last epistle he will write before he is executed. For, for this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I am convinced, same word, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. And he's waiting for the executioner's sword as he penned those words. I am convinced, and it's stated in the perfect tense, which usually refers to completed action with continuing results. And here, being convinced it happened in the past with the result that I'm even more fully convinced in the present. Of what is he absolutely convinced? That your salvation is perfectly, eternally, unconditionally secure. He continues with another list of these cosmic forces, including supernatural forces, all possible categories of things that can separate us from the love of God. It's almost a spiritual geometry of security, John. He's given it to us to read, to revel in, and to meditate on. So I hope you get the picture. He's pulling out all the stops right here. He pulls them all out. First of all, neither death nor life. First item in the list is the one that we experience the last, death. It's as if he says, okay, let's start with the worst thing that you can think of, death. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because as the psalm says, you are with me. One uh, wonderful preacher asked the question, would you rather be run over by a big truck or would you rather be run over by the shadow of a big truck? And the answer, of course, is, well, by the shadow. The shadow can't hurt me. And that's exactly the point, the valley of the shadow of death. Death is an enemy. The wages of sin is death, but sin's penalty has been paid, so death can't hurt you. You and I do not need to fear death. Hebrews 2 says that his, the purpose of Jesus' to, Jesus' death is to render powerless. 
Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those of us who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Our beloved brother Joe died unexpectedly Wednesday. My niece by marriage, Kelly Lasley, drove to the hospital on Wednesday. Was taken by an ambulance to another hospital and then life forced over to Nashville, to Vanderbilt, where she died Thursday night. She was just feeling bad Wednesday morning. Both are now in the presence of Jesus. We rejoice in this truth. Death does not separate us from the love of Christ. Death ushers us into the presence of Christ because to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Back to our text. We know of death as an enemy. What about life? Neither death nor life. He doesn't mean life in the sense of, 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 of the positive aspects of life here. He's focusing, I think, on life as the arena where these dangers take place. It's the arena of life where we experience tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. But the trials of life can't separate us from the love of Christ. Here he's already mentioned them, but now he's including them again for the sake of completeness. Death, nor life, angels, nor principalities. The word principalities refers to demons. Possibly those demons that have authority over other demons. Satan would be included in this category. It's interesting. Satan's not mentioned by name, but as a part of a group. Paul doesn't give Satan publicity. He lumps him in with the rest of the category. And certainly he lumps him in with the general group later, any other created thing. None of these can separate you from the love of God because they are ultimately subject to God. Now, question, why does he mention angels? Why would angels want to separate us from the love of God? If, you, if you've got principalities or evil angels or demons, why would he mention angels? I think it's for the sake of completeness. He's just making sure that you know he's not leaving anything out even hypothetically, that could separate us from the love of Christ. He says the same thing in Galatians 1.8, when he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached, he is to be accursed. Now, would it happen that an angel would preach to you a gospel contrary? No, it wouldn't. Not if he were truly an angel. But you get the point. No divine being, no supernatural being, no unnatural being, no natural being can separate us from Christ's love. Now, he moves into this temporal sphere. Things present, nor things to come. Everything that we are experiencing, everything that we will ever experience, none of that can separate us. Powers, he mentions powers. The word probably refers to kings, princes, princes uh, governmental authorities. They can kill the body, but not the soul. If they don't kill you, you win. If they do kill you, you win. You win either way. And no earthly power can separate you from God's love. Hebrews 13, 6 says, We may confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And Hebrews was written to a group of suffering Christians. What shall man do to me? How may we say this? Confidently. The next pair. Uh, he's, he's mentioned the temporal sphere. Now he he's, goes to the spatial sphere. Neither height nor depth. 
And these terms may both refer to the domain of astronomy. And space is what? Endless, for all practical purposes, in all directions. The term height refers to the high point of a star's path. And depth either refers to the low point of a star's path, or that same word can refer to the depths of the earth, or the same word can refer to the depths of the ocean. Either way, you get the point. There's no place in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that you will be separated from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not the dimension of time, not the dimension of space. So far, Paul has mentioned nine categories. Anything else? Anything left? Well, one more category. Number 10. New American Standard translates it any other created thing. King James translates it any other creature. That's, that's really far too narrow a translation. NIV and ESV translate it anything else in all creation, which is also good. So any other created thing, anything else in all creation. And to get the force of this statement, I have to give you a little Greek vocabulary lesson. The Greeks had two words for another or any other. They had two words for another, alos and heteros. I'm going to simplify it, but alos meant another of the same kind. Heteros meant another of a different kind. Okay? When I was dating Betsy and I would call for her on the payphone in her dormitory hall, some of you don't understand that language, I'll be happy to explain it to you later, but I would call on, on the payphone in her dormitory hall if she wasn't there and I was told she's with another friend, it would make a difference whether the word were alos or heteros. Okay? If she is with alos, another of the same kind friend, she's out with a girlfriend. If she were with heteros friend, I have competition. I grew up with the King James Version, which is a wonderful translation. But Galatians 1, 6 and 7 was, were very confusing. Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another. What? Another gospel which is not another. Well, then I learned that both words for another are used here. See, the false teachers were telling the Galatians that if you add works of law to the gospel, it's still the same gospel. It's just, it's gospel 2.0. It's, it's same thing. It's another of the same kind. It's alos gospel. Another of the same kind. And Paul says, literally, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a heteros, another of a different kind gospel, which is not at all alos, the same. Okay? All of that is to say this. When Scripture says there isn't any other heteros created thing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and since Scripture has already eliminated God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all of whom are engaged in keeping us saved, then this is the point. Just in case anyone could possibly speculate on any other category that hasn't been covered Anything beyond space, time, God, and creation. If you can think of anything beyond that, 
in a different category that hypothetically we haven't thought of, even then, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No who, no what, no nothing. No opposition that counts, no condemnation that sticks, no separation that is possible, nothing, period. Thank you. Because just as you were once born, you can never not be the child of your parents. You can't become unborn. Once you are born again, you can never be spiritually unborn as a child of God. One person put it well. The question is not, can I lose my salvation? The question is, can God lose me? Because the only way you can lose your salvation is if you are more powerful than God. The chapter begins, no condemnation, and it ends, no separation. So do do you understand that there are no exceptions to how secure you are? Do you understand that if you do not know him, that this is what you are rejecting? A love that will not let you go? How do we apply all this? Well, first at the obvious level, it is possible that one day we or our children or our grandchildren will experience tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. In the United States, Bible-believing Christians are fast becoming an unprotected minority whose rights are being systematically challenged, if not taken away. But far worse, I mean, you just go outside our borders, it's much, much worse. Across the world, persecution of Christians is becoming epidemic. Historically, within two decades after this was sent to the Roman church, the believers who read these words, the words that we're just now studying, faced all the things that are listed here. One writer put it this way, the sands of the Roman amphitheaters would soon be soaked with the blood of those who read these words. Some would be mauled by wild beasts. Some would be slain by ruthless gladiators. Others would be used as human torches to light Nero's garden parties. The horrors of Rome's torture of Christians rivals any finding that any human rights commission will ever discover. The cost of discipleship has always been high. But there's a second application for this passage. If God loves you with unconditional love, he will never let you go. And none of those things will separate you from him. But he wants you to think about this. If God loves you with unconditional love, how should you love others around you? How should you love your children? How should you love your spouse? How should you love your parents? How should you love your siblings? How should you love the brothers and sisters that are sitting here with you in church? How should you love your neighbor? Look, when you stumble and fall, God loves you with an unconditional love. And when people around you stumble and fall, God loves them with an unconditional love. Parents, is there anything that your children could ever do that would stop your love for them or that you would ever deny that they are your child? No. And God loves us like that and wants us to love those around us with that love. And the third application asks the question, how does this make any difference to how I live? We've already talked about some of those. Martin DeHaan wrote about three categories of security. Sure, but not secure. These are are people who believe that they have confirmed reservations in heaven, but for all the wrong reasons. 
They assume that because they're good people compared to others and because God grades on the curve, surely they're in, but they're horribly wrong. God does not save based on good works. There are others who are secure but not sure. That refers to those who are held firmly in Jesus' hand, but they just don't know enough scripture to know that. To trust Christ's complete sacrifice for their sins. And when they do blow it, they allow their guilt to cause them to feel unsaved. And and maybe to be paralyzed from serving well because their joy has been robbed from them. No, he wants us to be in the third category. Secure and sure. Those who know their security is based on Christ. Their trust is not in themselves, but in him. And the result should be joyful. Joyful obedience not saying hey i'm secure i can go join the prodigal son and go live in the pig pen no salvation doesn't work like that (laughs) that's abusing the grace of god as romans 6 described our security should result in even greater and even more faithful obedience story is told of the construction of the golden gate bridge in san francisco it was completed in 1937 The work was done in two phases. The first phase had no safety devices. 23 men filtered their deaths. 23 men. Then a large safety net was brought under the work areas. The work progressed. Ten men fell into that net. All of them lived. And what's interesting is that because the workers felt secure, production increased by 25%. Because they were assured of their security. Because you are secure. Actually, shouldn't we be more productive? More obedient to the call of God in our lives? And not because we don't have to waste time on introspection and self-doubt. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. We're going to sing a song that I think could be the theme song of the book of Romans. I'm going to ask you to turn to number 203. The worship team will come up. And can it be? And as we sing these words, I want you to reflect on each one of those. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And in the last No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Amazing love, how can it be? Would you stand, please?